over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Well, if I was going to give you a word to think about the book Habakkuk, It'd be two words. It'd be how long? How long? How long is this going to go on? This is an interesting minor prophet because Habakkuk and God are having kind of a conversation, unlike most prophets who are talking to Judah or to Israel or even secondarily to Assyria or to the Babylonians or some other people group. This is a conversation between a prophet and God. And because of that, we bend our ear, we kind of cup our ear and go, what is going on in this storyline? And it's very appropriate. We're living with this crazy thing called COVID-19 right now. Prior to that, we had tornadoes. We had locusts that were coming in swarms in certain parts of Africa and South America. We've got floods, the threat of tsunamis, weather patterns that we're all worrying about. And the Bible talks about birth pangs. The end times will be like birth pangs. And you got to wonder when these things happen, is something going on prophetically? Is something going on ultimately in God's timeline? I'm not a prophet or the son of a fig picker. I have no idea, but I know nothing is new. These things have happened throughout generations, and people always have the same responses. And so Habakkuk asked that question, how can these things go on? How can unbridled evil affect your people. And what are you going to do about it is the implication. It's not just how long, O oh Lord, but the question beneath that is, why aren't you doing something? Why are you letting this continue? And that's a good posture that perhaps we would not dare say that out loud. God, why, why don't you stop COVID-19? Why don't you stop these crazy things we're seeing around the globe? Why don't you stop immorality and evil and disease? Those are questions we may not utter, but that's really the subtext of what Habakkuk is complaining about. The old question, why do the righteous or the good people suffer, and why do the wicked prosper, is a tension that's as old as time. It's nothing new. So the implicit question is, where are you, God? Why aren't you doing something? Let's look at chapter one, the first three verses of Habakkuk. Let me read. You can follow along. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Now, keep two things in mind. Habakkuk is writing in a context. It's so important to understand the first primary audience of the Bible, who that book was written to, what it's about, and then how we understand it in our own context. At that particular time, there were two issues going on. There was, let's call it a national crisis and a religious political crisis. So there was a crisis from without and a crisis from within. 
And so it's an opportune time for the prophet to say, why, God, why don't you implicitly do something about this? And it's really helpful to keep that in mind. The national crisis is a bit complicated unless you're a history buff. But you need to understand that the Babylonians and the Assyrians were big enemies. They were the global superpowers of the day. The empire, uh, the Assyrians have finally been defeated by the Babylonians. This is monumentous. And they are on a roll, so to speak, and they go after Egypt. Egypt would be the other superpower of the day. And so now Babylon has become the global superpower of the time, and they're no friend of Israel. In the meantime, you have this religious political crisis going on, let's just say within Israel, within Jerusalem, Israel, and Judea. You've got this issue. You had a king named Josiah who was a great king. That's one of the best names to name a son, by the way. It's a good, strong name. And he's a good man. He lives as a good king. He dies. There's a little short window king, and then another king comes along after him who is named Jehoiakim. He reigns for 11 years, and he has that unpleasant epitaph, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So his 11-year time essentially dismantles all the good that Josiah had done. Step back. Babylon and Assyria have had their battles. You've got these superpowers now. Now Babylon is the superpower. Internally, you've got a corrupt king. And Habakkuk's going, what in the world is going on? Not too different than today, is it? Not too different than how we might feel about global powers without naming names of countries. Not, we might feel that way about international threats, people that hate America. And I'm not saying America is innocent or, or Israel or perfect, but we have enemies. And we also have enemies from within, don't we? We have corrupt political leaders, men and women who don't have the country's best in mind. So like Habakkuk, we could ask God, why? How long? When will you do something about that? Now keep in mind, Jesus, as he's coming down the so-called Hosanna Trail, riding on a donkey of peace, this so-called Palm Sunday, the uh, peasants, the, the pilgrims grab palm leaves, and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, they're praising God. They think he's the king, and he's riding on a small animal, not a horse of dominance and power and warring, but an animal of peace. And they're throwing their garments on the ground and waving the palm branches. a big celebration. In a couple of weeks, it's all over. It's done. So this Hosanna, this, this trail that goes down into the city as he comes up to Jerusalem for the festival is a picture of a political power outside of Israel. They had enemies in Christ's time too. And the religious political system of scribes and Pharisees that hated Jesus, that wanted to kill him. So nothing really is new. From Habakkuk's time to Jesus' time, and even for Christians around the world today. Now, this is really a, an extraordinary book. It's a beautiful book, but it hinges on this question, how long? And the book is awful, meaning full of awe. Not awful and terrible, but it's full of awe. It's an awful book, and it's a wonderful book. Because we get, to, we get privy of a conversation between God and a prophet, and we get an answer. So it's an extraordinary short book, 56 verses. It's very quick, a very easy read with this conversation. The book of poetry and structure ends, for those of you who are music lovers, with a direction to the choir director. This is how you're going to sing this. So it's an interesting storyline if we put it together. I want you to look at the book in a way that might help you. It helps me as I look at it. So in the first four verses, we have Habakkuk complaining. 
And then in chapter one, verses five to 11, we have God's reply. Then we have another round of Habakkuk's complaint in chapter one, verse 12, to the first verse of chapter two. And then we have God's reply again in chapter two, verses two to 20. And then the final chapter, all 19 verses, is Habakkuk's prayer. So complaint, reply, complaint, and prayer. It's an easy structure and easy for you to write in the margins of your Bible to see how these breaks unfold. Makes it helpful for me as I go back and read the book again and again. So this complaint lament is important. The psalmist, of course, did this. The psalmists were unapologetic about, God, where are you? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do these things happen? That should encourage you and me. We can complain to God. It's not as though we're venting our spleen. It's we're asking the God of the universe to help us. We don't understand certain things. We may not always find the answer, but God is able for you and me to complain and to lament if we read and understand his replies. Now, by chapter 2, we have this response. And let me read part of it in chapter 2, verses 2 to 3, where God is responding then to Habakkuk's complaint. Chapter 2, beginning at verse 2, Then the Lord answered me, Habakkuk writing, and said, Record the vision and inscribe on tablets. I love this phrase. Write it down. Write down what you've seen. Put it on a tablet, and there must be an allusion back to the law that Moses had two tablets with the so-called Ten Commandments, the Decalogue on those two tablets. By the way, those were probably copies. In Sunday school, we had uh, uh, Commandments 1 to 5 and 6 to 10 on two tablets with a hinge. Mm -mm. Probably all ten were on each tablet. One's put in the Ark of the Covenant, and the other would be for use. So these tablets were a way of ensconcing God's word to keep it, to retain it, to teach it for people to study it and be aware of it. And he tells the prophet, record the vision and write it on a tablet. That the one who reads it may run, for the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. So we've got this record, this inscribe, and we're going to see very briefly these five woes we're going to follow from this text. But these, these, this, putting this together, this complaint and God responding, and then this series of woes, the structure of what Habakkuk is doing is called a taunt song. He's taunting the enemies, if you will. Let, let me tell you what's going to happen. You think you're something? You think you're a superpower, Babylon? Let me tell you what's going to happen and what's going to happen to people that aren't faithful. Then finally, chapter 3 is going to round out a doxology, we might call it, an orthodoxy where we're praising God, doxa, giving glory to God. We think of vertical songs that are doxological. We're talking about God's character, his attribute. We're not singing a lot of I, me, my. We're singing you, yours, when we're vertically worshiping God. And chapter 3 is essentially a doxology, but it's hard because it talks about this awful wrath of God. Some of the topics covered, pestilence, plagues, shattering the mountains, raging against the rivers, the wrath of God on the sea, rods of chastisement, mountains that quake, floods. Sounds a little bit like what's gone on in the last few years in our own world, doesn't it? The eviscerating of evil, 
this phrase, lay him open from thigh to neck. We would say cut him from head to toe. So the language is a warrior, wrathful God who's bringing punishment on evil nations, on evil people. Well, Habakkuk's response and prayer reveals the heart of the prophet. He's had his complaint, God's replied. Another complaint, and God replies with this good news in a way. And then in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we read these verses. I heard, and my inward parts trembled. I don't know if if COVID-19 has made you tremble. I don't know if the fear of, you know, a tornado or a hurricane or weather or whatever, losing your, your job, the economy, does that make you tremble? Nothing is new. Nothing is new. Habakkuk says, when I hear God's pronouncement on what's going to happen, my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. I couldn't even speak. Decay enters my bone. We feel the pain. We talk about it cuts to the bone. I hurt. I feel all the way to the bone. And in my place, I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there will be no cattle in the stalls. This hinge piece before we finish the book with this great doxology is things are going to really get bad. If you have not been to Israel, and it still is God's will for you to go at some point, you will see the most fertile crescent you've ever seen. If you go in the springtime between the olives and the orange blossoms, all that goes on, it's a lush, lush area. The valleys around uh, Mount Carmel where you visit are just full of produce. Every area that they can develop into farmland has got fig trees, got palm trees, it's got olives galore, mangoes, oranges, bananas all over the countryside. It's a fertile place, just like God said the promised land would be. And now in the vision Habakkuk's giving, it won't be that way. It'll be desolate. Well, let me give you five lessons that help me in the book of Habakkuk, and I think, I hope, will encourage and help you as well. Uh, Number one, the first one that strikes me is that our God is eternal and immovable. He is eternal and immovable. As Habakkuk stated in chapter 1, verse 12, are you not from everlasting O Lord, my God, my Holy One. Superpowers come and go. We might have enemies of other nations. If we go back to World War II and we look at Germany and the forces that allied with Germany and the forces that allied with the UK and the West and how we fought this major World War II conflict, these global powers came together and there was some resolve in World War II. We've had a lot of messy wars since World War II. The Korean War, the Vietnam War, Afghanistan, our our time abroad in the Middle East has been a mess. It's been very difficult to talk about just war and is there a solution to these wars? Did anybody win? And of course, in every war, many people die. Habakkuk, the prophet, is saying, you are from everlasting. Superpowers come and go. Yes, people are injured. Yes, people lose their, lose their lives and livelihood. Yet yeah, he's not negating that, but he's saying, you, are you not from everlasting? You've always been around. 
It should give us a, a picture of even though evil runs unchecked, God's not pacing heaven's floor. He's not wringing his hands. He's not chewing his fingernails. He's sovereign. He's eternally existent. He's immovable. And that's an anchor. That's a stronghold for you and me. Uh, J. Ronald Blue, not to be confused with the master your money, Ron Blue, many of you might be familiar with, but Ron Blue wrote a small commentary on the book of Habakkuk, and he writes, the ever-present why is best answered by the everlasting who. We're never going to get away from this why, God, why did these things happen? Why did it happen to me? Why did it happen to an innocent child? Why do you allow evil and suffering and disease and COVID-19? Why? Listen to him again. The ever-present why, man will always have why questions, is best answered by the everlasting who. You and I have to put some of our why questions aside, knowing we're never going to have the answer to them, and trust in the who. That's what Ron Blue is saying. Though the outlook may seem like terror, the uplook elicits trust. When you look out on the culture, on the land, on the superpowers, on political governments that are corrupt and evil and have self-interest in mind, where we have enemy nations or enemy diseases, if you want to call them that, um, the outlook may elicit terror, but the uplook, looking up, elicits trust. He continues, the prophet's complaints and fears were resolved in confidence and faith. This is the heart of the message of Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith, from chapter 2, verse 4. Secondly, another lesson that helps me, and this is very interesting in chapter 2, and I've distilled it to three phrases, stand guard, take your stand, and keep watch. Stand guard, take your stand, and keep watch. Depending on your English translation, the words may be a little different, but that's the gist of what they mean. Chapter 2. 2 verse 1, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply. Watch this, when I am reproved. It's a very interesting statement. Now, the clear reference, of course, is remaining faithful. But the tension is things don't necessarily go better because we're faithful. It doesn't mean it's going to be happily ever after. Quite the contrary. Even though the prophet did not like the imminent judgment that was coming upon him and his people, he stood his ground. He's not being threatened. He's not being bullied. He's not being pushed aside. Uh, or even worse, he's not using the circumstance to be faithless. And this is a dangerous trap Christians can get in when things go poorly. You lose your job. You lose your marriage. lose your health. Things don't go right. We have this twisted thing, well, if God's not playing fair, I'll go sin. Why should I be faithful if he's not being faithful to me is the, is the twisted logic that we can get into. It's a pretty specific reminder. And as Habakkuk says, stand guard, take your stand, and keep watch. It's really encouraging because you've got this confidence that it may not work out humanly the way we want, but I can stand firm. I can state, because why? My stand is on Christ, ultimately what he's going to do. I can't change it anyway. Can you solve COVID-19? Of course not. Can you stop from getting it? Eh, maybe you can slow it down a little bit. Maybe you can wash your hands 10 more times today, see if that helps. Keep watch. 
Stand guard. Take your stand and keep watch. Those who've been in the military, um, I think of enlisted men and women, especially that have to go stand post. And during their training, they get some of the most brutal duties. Uh, They pull terrible duty, standing post in the middle of nowhere, doing nothing. But they better be on guard and on awake when their uh, drill sergeant comes by and checks on them. Otherwise, they're in a whale of trouble. Stand guard, take your stand, keep watch. That's a hard job, actually, especially if nothing's going on. Can you stand guard? Can you take your stand and keep watch? The only way I know how to do it is to smile at the future. Because the present may not be fun or enjoyable, but I know the future will ultimately be better. And I look forward to that, and I hope you do too. Thirdly, everything is unfolding according to God's plan. Everything is unfolding according to A lot of Christians have trouble with God's providence and God's sovereignty, and sometimes we intermix the two. The synonyms can be a little bit uh, too refined, But nothing happens outside of God's sovereign providence. We look back on providence, and we want to give an explanation for why it turned out the way it did. Sometimes that's an error to do that. Other times it's just convenient for our theology. Habakkuk 2, verse 3, For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Stop for a minute. If you were told that, and it wasn't going to happen in your lifetime, would you still trust? That's the hard part. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Uh, This is God's voice to Habakkuk, and I find a wordplay here. I can't say it's bulldogmatically, but I think what, what Habakkuk is saying with God's word is, it hastens, but it tarries. It's, it's a two-edged thing. It's hurry up, but, it, but it's going to wait. And that's the point. Everything is unfolding according to God's schedule. God's, man has schedules and timelines and, oh, the virus is going to peak here. Oh, it's going to peak here. Oh, it's going to peak there. Oh, it may never peak. You know, who knows? Only time will tell. And when we look back on it, the people that guessed with the right best models can say, see, we knew what was going to happen. That's the way human beings are. It's a lot better posture, in my opinion, to rest in God's unfolding plan, not how I want the plan to work out. Fourth, this is hard for some of us, know when to be quiet. Know when to be quiet. Chapter 2, verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Following the woes, and there's five of them in chapter 3, we have this red flag, it's a, the, word, the word but in verse 20, but, and that's on the heels of a comparison of idols. And you know enough about idols from the book of Isaiah, and if you haven't read Habakkuk, you can scan through there. But basically, you take, an, you take wood or stone or something, and you make an idol, and you worship it. And it's lifeless, it doesn't speak, it can't do anything for you. And Habakkuk, verse 20, chapter 2, says, but the Lord... He's a real God. He's in his temple, and you need to be quiet. And the wordplay is the idols are mute, and they're deaf. They can't speak or hear or do anything, but you better be quiet when it comes to terms with your relationship with God. The Lord is in his holy temple. Sometimes uh, those of us who have the gift of gab, it should probably be called the curse of conversation, we talk too much. Having nothing to say, he said something. And the challenge with that for people like us, it's hard to be quiet. 
sometimes uh, having the Bible in my lap in the morning or my handbook to prayer or devotion I may use and reading and just being quiet. And I'm not listening for an audible voice. I'm not waiting for God to speak to me through his word or through his spirit. I'm just trying to turn the noise down. And the noise in my head is the what if. The noise in my head is the to-do list of the day. The noise in my head are all the things I'm behind on. The noise in my head are relationships that, that have broken my heart. The noise in your head is what? How do you turn that down? It's a psalm in a way. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Until you and I have a clear picture of who our God is, we don't have reason to be quiet. Because we think we contribute something. We think we're doing something. And we're enjoined in this passage, be quiet. I'm reminded of Paul's comment in chapter 9 of the book of Romans. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Who do we think we are? Or Job, after all that he's been through in chapter 42, I retract, I repent in dust and ashes. Who am I to question your motives? Who am I to challenge what you've done as a sovereign God? Those are statements of the mature, not for babies. I think it was Lewis that said, only children expect God to be fair. In that sense, adults maturing in faith, the world is not going to be fair. And we can't lay our view of fair upon God. But if you know who he is and you see him for who he is, you'll be quiet. Finally, fifth, no matter our circumstance, choose to trust. No matter your circumstance, you and I have the choice of trusting him. And these are the crescendo verses on the book, the uptick of the book, chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet, and he makes me walk on high places. And then we have the subscript for the choir director, on the stringed instruments. It's kind of an odd ending, but let's see if we can make sense of it. First of all, whenever you read the Psalms, especially, when the psalmist says, I will rejoice, I will sing of God's loving kindness, I will, I will, he's making a declarative decision. I'm going to do something. It's simple. We miss it, but it's a choice the worshiper brings to the table. So what is Habakkuk saying? I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice. We were talking earlier with some friends about when we're down or discouraged or fearful, there might be a song, a Christian song, an old hymn, that if you sing that song out loud, in my, in my case, it's alone with no one around me to mock my singing. But if I sing that song aloud, uh, generally in one or two stanzas, my countenance will change. Something about it, I don't understand at all. But there is a choice of the worshiper. I will exalt the Lord. I will rejoice not in my situation, in the God of my salvation. Further, this, these two strophes are so interesting because he makes these declarative choices. I will exalt, I will rejoice, and then he makes a declarative statement. The Lord, God, is my strength. Notice, and he has made my feet. 
you didn't develop a skill set. Now, granted, some people have better agility, more athletic ability. They're, you know, whatever, eye-hand coordination. Some of us, like me, are klutzes, and that doesn't come naturally. That's not what the text is talking about. When you walk the walk of faith, God is the one who makes your feet like Heinz feet. When we go to Israel, we go to an area called En Gedi. looks like E-I-N Gedi, Ein Gedi, the spring of the wild goat. And you're in the desert area north, just a little bit north of the Dead Sea. And you go on this trail about a half an hour. And it's, it's desert. It's dirt. It's rock. There's very little vegetation. And you see ibex there. The ibex have been there for hundreds of years. And these ibex look like large goats with racks. And there's always little baby ibex running around that all the tourists like to take pictures of. And in seconds they can run up these rocks into the top of this cliff, probably 400 some feet. And you just watch them just nimble up it like nothing to it. And they don't slip. If a climber with the right shoes and technology did that same walk, it would take them a couple hours. And God has designed these animals. He has made them. That was an image every Jew understood. He makes my feet like hinds feet. And you watch these hinds jump, big, big, short, uh, big horned sheep jump in the Rockies. You watch them move. They're so agile. And their hooves, they don't look like, you know, grips like we would, a man made grip. See, God made them that way. And that's so obvious to the ancient. He's made my feet like hinds feet. And he continues, and he makes me to walk on my high places. You can't do this in your own flesh is what the point is. God's designed us with certain limitations, but he also has enabled us by his power to do things that we cannot normally do. He's made my feet and he makes me walk. Well, the little epitaph, if you will, that's perhaps not the best title for it. The subscript at the end of the psalm to me is interesting. And it struck me this week for the first time. When you say all this, complaining to God, God's reply. Complaining to God, God's reply. And this is all going to work out in two short verses. Let's sing about it. Because the response for the worshiper was, things may not get better. We may go through some very difficult times. But can you stand firm? Can you stand by? Can you watch in faith and have confidence in him? And then he tells the choir director, sing about it. Teach God's people. It's an important tune to know. So just as a review, God is eternal and immovable. He's worthy of your trust. Secondly, stand guard. Take your stand and keep watch. Third, everything is unfolding according to God's plan. He's not worried He's not concerned. He's not pacing heaven's floor. Fourth, this is a hard one for some of us. No one to be quiet. No one to stop with the noise. And you might find in that little fulcrum of chatter and information and worry and fear, you might find that pause. I'm arresting God. I'm arresting what I know about his character and who he is. And finally, no matter your circumstance, choose to trust him. After all, what are you going to do? You're going to fix it yourself? That works out real well, doesn't it? No matter your circumstance, you've lost your job. You've lost income. Your children are at home driving you insane. Everyone's become a homeschooler overnight. I mean, all these things that have happened to us in this crazy season. Can you take a breath? Can you rest in the moment? Not worry about all the what-ifs and contingencies and trust him. 
As we jump next week to Easter Sunday, the most remarkable Sunday on our calendar, Christ has come down the Hosanna Trail, born to die that we might live. It's his last time, so to speak, as the God-man before his crucifixion. And he comes, and they think he's the one. He's the one. He's going to solve all our problems. And he doesn't. They kill him. But he solves the ultimate problem. They wanted him to bring in a kingdom and a political structure. He wanted to offer salvation to all the world, to all who will come by faith. If you're living in a time of fear and you don't know Christ, that's our biggest concern for you. Is that you know who this Jesus is. He's not just a man we celebrated Easter riding on a donkey with palm branches and making great colored pictures and dressing up on Easter Sunday and pretending you're going to go to church and eating great food and Easter egg hunts fine, great stuff. He was born to die that you and I can live. He was the only sinless person ever to live. Fully God, fully man. He loves you. He died in your place on your behalf and instead of you and me. If you've not trusted him, it is so simple. It keeps people at bay. How can it be that easy? Well, it wasn't easy for God, but our response is remarkably easy. By faith, we put our trust in Jesus Christ to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And when you trust Christ, not yourself, he forgives you of your sin, he indwells you by his spirit, and he makes you a new creation. We become part of the family of God. It's a funny business, the way it works out. I don't understand all I know, but I know that he loves you. I know that he died for your sins and mine. I know the only way to find forgiveness is in a personal relationship with Christ. Do you know him? Have you trusted him? Because that's the only real reason to be excited about Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, is that the resurrection overcame sin and death to give you and me eternal life. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates. Thank you.